We're in chapter three in our first Peter study, and um, and hopefully you're kind of following along. I'd encourage you just to kind of review the notes before we start. You know, from chapters one and two, uh, just review what we've done every week. Because I want the kind of the five chapters to seem like one letter to you rather than five chopped up chapters. Because that's how Peter intended it to be, and. Like, we're going to start with the word likewise tonight. So, obviously, Peter's comparing chapter 3 to chapter 2. So, um, we want this to kind of flow. And so, to do that, the high school teacher is going to come out to me a little bit and say, do your homework. Uh, kind of review what we've done before before we get there. So, when people mention First Peter, when you think of this letter in the future... You can kind of go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, Peter encouraging them in their suffering, calling them to submission, and you kind of see the flow of what's what's going on there. So let's open in a word of prayer, and we will see what uh, chapter 3 has for us tonight. So it's our Lord and our God, and in Jesus' name we come to you. And Lord, uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather together tonight. And Lord, as we um, open up your word, Lord, we pray for the beauty and the majesty of your word to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, we know that much of your word kind of takes on or goes against the culture that we're living in right now. And we pray that we would hear your voice through it all. And Lord, you would find us to be receptive and obedient, Lord, because we are your people set apart by you. And so, Lord, we uh, humbly receive that tonight and we humbly look forward to what you have to say in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so uh, <clears throat> immediately we're going to get a call out to wives here, to wives. So, and then it says likewise, likewise. So therefore that likewise means, hey, what I just said about Jesus in the last few verses, I likewise now say that this is true of wives. Now that's very interesting because I don't think we often heard it taught or explained that in the submission of a wife to her husband, that there's a there's a likeness to Jesus Christ that she's called to walk in. And what is that likeness to Jesus Christ? Well, if we go back into chapter two, um, we'll just start with uh, verse 23. It says, who when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Wives, likewise. So here you get the whole entire, the whole entire redemptive purpose of God wrapped up in and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the suffering that he had to endure to change the disobedient into the obedient. So those that were going astray like sheep and so forth, Jesus took the disobedient and through the death on the cross, he brings them into obedience so that they can be the people of God. It says, wives, you've got something likewise to do there. And what does Peter say? He says, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. What was Jesus submissive to in the previous verses? He was literally submissive to the will of his father. Remember in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And then the will of the father plays out on the cross. So as he's submissive to the will of his father, even through the suffering of the cross, 
Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Some of you would say, yeah, that's like the suffering of the cross type of thing. Well, you chose them. I don't know what Diana's saying over there in the corner right now, but hopefully it's better than that for you. But uh, hopefully it's better for Diana. And she's muted, so you'll never know. So um, <laughs> making myself nervous with all this stuff. All right. So be submissive to your own husband. Listen, I wrote it down this way. Spiritually submissive wives have more influence than culturally correct ones. Spiritually submissive wives have more influence than culturally correct wives have. By culturally correct, I mean those wives that say, I ain't submitting to nobody. Um, I'm my own woman, you know, type of thing. Be your own woman. Just don't think that you're following Jesus Christ in that. Because this says, and it, uh, this is the same wording. Peter used the same words as, as, as Paul uses in Ephesians 5. So why don't you turn with me to Ephesians 5, and I want to get this picture. So what Peter's getting at right now is this. I just told you how Jesus Christ brought the disobedience into obedience through submission. Not submission to a husband, but submission to his father and submission to death. Philippians 2 says he became obedient even to death, even the death of a cross. So that type of submission, because what we're going to learn today is this. Submission and obedience have power. And it's the power that changes the world. It's um, submission and obedience, and we're also going to see suffering. Submission, obedience, and suffering has the power to change the world. We think it's quite the opposite. Just like we think it's better to receive than to give, and then we're taught by Jesus it's better to give than receive. Jesus Christ turns all of our worldly understandings 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So he says, just as Jesus submitted and obeyed the Father to the Father's will on the cross, and therefore the disobedient became obedient, you have the power to change your husbands, your disobedient husbands, your husbands who may be going astray or not in the faith, they're actually going to be won over through submission, is what he's trying to say. Now, in Ephesians 5, Paul puts it this way, okay? He'll say, um, in the first seven verses of Ephesians 5, he'll say, Be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet swelling, swelling, a sweet-smelling aroma, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So what's the first, what's the call in these first seven verses? Imitate God as dear children, walk in love. And when you walk in love, therefore you will by necessity not walk in those other things of sin. So the first call is to walk in love. What's the second call? To walk in light. Let's look at 8 through 14. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. 
and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So the first seven verses is walk in love. The next set of verses is walk in the light. 15 through 21, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So this huge celebration of loving each other, walking in light, greeting each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God in the name of Jesus Christ. And what is part of all that celebration? Submitting to one another. Okay, so submission is part of celebration. Submission is part of this joyous plan of unity. And we're gonna talk about unity in a minute, okay? Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Every time we get that uh, call to do something in the fear of God, the idea is understand who's asking you. Okay, understand who's asking you. The higher the authority of the one asking you, the more you, there's a fear in you to say, I, I really need to do that. Well, understand who's asking. So with all of that celebration that he just pronounced, he then, as part of that celebration, says, wives, continue your spiritual songs and hymns and joyful celebration by submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord. So this isn't such a human endeavor as it is a spiritual endeavor. You're to do something as to the Lord. You submit to your own husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, in the same way that the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now, with that clear call to submission to husbands in, in Christian marriages, the husband's call is this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The greatest sacrifice ever that we've ever witnessed or seen is a sacrifice of the Son of God for mankind. Now that's the model of a husband's love. It's entirely sacrificial. So with, with this usually uh, fear and trembling that most Bible teachers or pastors address this passage for wives' submission, we have to remember when you're asked to submit to your husbands, what is your husband's leadership supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like a willingness to die for you, to serve as Christ has served. He said, if I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's also. So when women say, I ain't submitting to no man, understand you're saying, I'm not gonna let him serve me. I'm not gonna let him serve me as the Lord served me. That's what you're called to submit to. So I think the negative picture we get is a false picture, and it's a picture of submitting to a man who wants to lord it over you. And Jesus says, we don't lord it over them as the Gentiles do, but rather our leadership is in the form of service. So 
as Christ lit, love the church is willing to die for her. We're to love that way also. In premarital counseling, I'll say to say to the uh, man, um, you know, if somebody pointed a gun at your fiance's head, would you do everything you can to take that bullet for her? And if he doesn't answer yes right away, I'll look at her and say, just know you're entitled to somebody that would have said yes right away. That's who God has for you, somebody that immediately says yes. Diana and I's premarital, Pastor Chetlow said, if you guys are in a rowboat and she falls over and a man eating shark's coming right at her, would you jump in? And I was very quick to say no. Um, I said, if it's a man eating shark, she has nothing to worry about. So why would I jump in the water? So <laughs> it's amazing this woman's still married to me, I know, but she is. Um, anyways, <laughs> if you could see my wife right now. Um, so listen, he says, why do you do this? That he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. Listen, he says this idea of leading by loving and serving and submitting is a great mystery. And he says, I just got done telling you about uh, how a husband should love a wife and how a wife should submit to her husband. But guess what? Here's the mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. I'm saying that there's a marriage that happened between Jesus and his bride, the church. And, and how are we on earth to know in a tangible way the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church? He says, God gave you marriage to show you that. He gave you marriage so that you will know the relationship between Jesus and his church. Jesus is a bridegroom. He's a bridegroom who's willing to die for his bride. And that bride's greatest blessings, that bride's greatest freedom to be who she's called to be, and all of her purity and strength will come through her submission to that bridegroom. So God wants marriages to be looked upon by people. And as they observe that marriage, they could say, I'm starting to understand the gospel now. I'm starting to see the gospel because of your marriage. That's God's plan for marriage. That's what he intends marriage to do, is to show that. So Jesus is introduced as the bridegroom, the church is the bride, and if and remember, this was taught in the first century. So what did a first century wedding look like? A first century wedding was an arranged marriage where the father of the groom would select a bride for his son. And if you can imagine the amazingly difficult task, God bless you, if you can imagine the, the very difficult task of Choosing a woman that will bring delight to your son, both the moment that they meet and for the next 50 years, bringing delight to your son always, delight to each other always. How do you find that woman? Well, that was the, the, the father's job. And when he picked that woman and they, and they were initially pleased with each other and they were always pleased with each other, that's the picture of your relationship to the church. 
That's a picture of your relationship to the church. And if you sit in front of me right now saved, authentically saved, where if you died tonight, you'll go to heaven, that means that God chose you because you bring great delight to his son, both now and you will forevermore. That's the picture that's being drawn here. So how do we let the world know that? We have godly marriages. And we let the world look at our godly marriage and say, I'm starting to see the truth of the gospel through your godly marriage. So this is very, very important that we follow these admonitions. Now, spiritually submissive wives have more influence than culturally, culturally correct ones. If you have a disobedient husband, believe it or not, God says in your submission, listen to what Peter says, we're back in 1 Peter. He says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Spiritually submissive wives have more influence than culturally correct ones. Your power is in your submission. These words we get the world has twisted them, the devil has twisted them, that submission means weakness, that submission means inferiority, that is nowhere to be found in the Bible. You are equal in all things, but it's more of a division of labor. Submission is a division of labor. There has to be a leader and somebody who submits to that leadership in any endeavor, in any endeavor. So it is a marriage. So. With that, he says in verse three, do not let your adornment or your beauty be merely outward. It can certainly be outward, but it shouldn't be exclusively outward. He says, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and peaceful spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I wish men had a verse that says, do this and it's very precious in the sight of God. I hope I will be very dedicated to pursuing that thing as very precious in the sight of God. Well, you women have such a verse. You have such instruction. And it is, do not let your beauty be merely outward. Don't worry so much of what you see in the mirror, more worry about what your character shows the world. Um, he says it, it, there's an incorruptible beauty to pursue. And this incorruptible beauty is not found at beauty salons or hair, hair, hair places or uh, in makeup counters and things like that. This incorruptible beauty is a part of your spirit the spirit which you submit to God and he sanctifies over and over again, that over and over again he's conforming you into the image of Christ day by day by day by day, more and more like your savior. That beauty never fades away. So Peter loves this word incorruptible. He loves telling us about incorruptible things. In chapter one and verse four, he says, in chapter one, verse four, he says, um, God's mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Just like our inheritance, our reward in heaven is incorruptible and does not fade away, so is the beauty of a woman 
that this peaceful and this gentle spirit is a beauty and it's incorruptible. Now, does this mean she's, she's weak or timid? No. It means she's strong. It means she's, read Proverbs 31. That's the woman that he's speaking of, is the Proverbs 31 woman. And, and there's power uh, in her beauty, this unfading beauty. Um, I can't remember who it was, but Diane and I went to this uh, Italian restaurant where there was this, somebody having their 50th wedding anniversary. I don't remember who it was, but there was like pictures of the couple from their wedding there and so forth. And, um, and they were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. As you looked at the pictures of the bride 50 years ago, um, and then you, you look at the couple now, very wonderful couple. Um, you, he's the type of guy that would say, hey, she's more beautiful to me today than she was the day I married her. And if you looked at the picture, you'd say, no, she's not. She's really not more beautiful today. She's, her picture's right there. She stood up straight back then. She didn't have wrinkles on her face. She had color in her hair. She was more beautiful then. But, but he's talking about something entirely different. He's saying, I fell in love with a beauty that is incorruptible, it's unfading. It's her character, it's her spirit. And when you marry that, and then you add 50 years of memories and 50 years of raising kids and 50 years of doing life together, then you better believe he's gonna say she's more beautiful now because the beauty I fell in love with doesn't fade. And with that unfading beauty, I add a lifetime of memories to it, you better believe she's more beautiful today than she was 50 years ago. That's what Peter's calling you to. It's very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. These are the Esthers and the Ruths and folks like that. Being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you are good and not afraid with any ter terror. Now, Lord there is not the Lord that we call Jesus with. It's simply the Lord that expresses an authoritative position type of thing. All right. So Sarah did it. So, so the, the women of old that are being celebrated uh, have done it. Verse 7, husbands, likewise, there it is again, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. Now, um, we do this retreat for 10th graders where we teach the boys to honor the girls. And we have them, we, we prepare a, a meal for them and the boys have to bring the food to the girls, sit with them. We pair them up almost like on a date type of thing. And, um, and they're to honor those girls throughout, throughout that, that weekend. And, um, and believe it or not, as the years go by with that, more and more girls are saying, I don't need them opening doors for me. I know how to open a door. You know, all those things, things that are meant for honor, they now take as insult, okay? We got to remember the things that are made for honor and keep them honorable. Okay, we're very good at calling evil good and good evil nowadays. But the very thing that we're being called to here is giving honor to our wives as to the weaker vessel. That weaker only means physically. It does not mean any type of inferiority at all simply means if somebody breaks into your house, it ought to be your husband that rises to the defense and not the wife type of thing, okay? 
So, uh, so we pay honor to them as a weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. There's the equality. There's the equality. It says, yes, God did put beauty in one. The call to beauty was not given to the men, and the call to strength was not given to the women. The men were called to the strength, the women were called to the beauty, and women get attracted to strength. Men don't usually go, look at the biceps on that girl. They're not attracted to the strength. They're attracted to the beauty. The women are usually attracted to the strength. And, and that gives us roles to fulfill. And then where the equality lies in, the equality comes right here. It says you are heirs together of the grace of life. God wants to give you a life filled with grace. And it comes through understanding who God made me to be, who God made you to be, and fulfilling the roles, because God has purpose in all of this. Nothing's accidental. Nothing's accidental. Uh, I was just teaching from Isaiah 6 today, and it talked about these angels with six wings. And you go, why would an angel have six wings? They, they, birds can fly with two. What do they need six for? Well, it tells you, with two, they cover their, their eyes. And they're covering their eyes because they're in the presence of God. And the glory of God, what did it do to Moses? It caused him to radiate so much he had to veil himself so he wouldn't blind people. So the angels in the glory of God, use two, two, they're created with these wings to cover their face because of the glory of God. They're created with two other wings to cover their feet because they're in the presence of God. And when Moses had to remove his sandals because where God was was holy ground. And so these angels cover their feet because your feet represent your creatureliness because you're made from the dust and your feet connect you to that dust that you're made from. And when you're in the presence of God, whether it's prayer or worship or whatever, you should remember whose presence you're in. There should be some reverence there. So the angels cover their feet that connect them to the dust of the earth that remind them, I'm a creature and he's a creator. I'm, we're not equals here. I'm talking to a superior being here. I'm talking to an almighty being here. And we should remember that. Now, so <laughs> purposeful, purposefully creating. Nothing's created without purpose by God. And so he's telling us how he created the man and the woman so that we could be co-heirs of the grace of life. I love that saying myself. And that your prayers may not be hindered. Listen, God, God sees you and God hears you. And what would ever prevent God from seeing you and hearing you? It's when you're, not operating according to the owner's manual. It's when you're not operating according to the instructions given, it's gonna literally hinder your prayers. And I would say that for almost any sin. Sin hinders prayers. So many people, when people come to me, they say, I just always feel like my prayers fall to the floor or hit the ceiling. My first question always is, do you have unconfessed sin in your life? I don't wanna talk about that. I wanna talk about my prayer life. So I am talking about your prayer life. Okay, your prayers have ways of being hindered. And we need to clear those ways up. And this is one of them to husbands. All right, verse eight. Finally, all of you be of one mind, com having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, this is a call to virtuous living. He's gonna give us some virtues here that should be included in how we live our lives. And what are these virtues that we're, we're being called to? Virtue number one, be of one mind. One mind, that's unity. Unity, I'm reading a book on revival right now. 
And one of the things that really hit me was you don't have to be a part of too many prayer groups before you start hearing calls for revival. God, send us revival, bring us revival. But every revival you see in scripture, something precedes that revival and it's always unity. They're always together in one place. They're always unified. Think of, think of Pentecost, how they're together at one place at one time of one mind and then unity comes. And I'm sorry, then power comes. Power of the Holy Spirit comes, revival comes. So it's unity, it's being unified, being of one mind. It doesn't mean you agree on every single topic. It simply means on the core issues that if disagreed upon would cause division, we have unity in those things. We have agreement on those things. I see it like this. I see us coming together and being unified. It's like forming an electrical wire. And when we flip the switch on, we want the power to come through that wire and, and that power to be seen in lights or, or whatever. Well, our unity is like being that wire. So when we pray for revival, the Holy Spirit needs the wire to come into us to give us the power. So we need to be united. If we're not united, we're like a frayed wire. If you have frayed wires, there's not gonna be any power that goes through it. So we gotta become unified like a good wire so the power comes through us and then you'll have revival. And the other thing about revival is this. We only see at Pentecost it happening to groups of people at once. Otherwise, revival, whether it's what Jonathan Edwards accomplished in the Northeast or wherever, it comes from individuals deciding to be obedient to God. So if you want revival, it starts with your own obedience. We get unified and then individually we choose obedience over disobedience and all things of God. And then with that unity and that obedience, we'll see the power come through us. So he says, be of one mind. Having compassion is the second vir virtue, compassion. Compassion literally means like feelings. They have similar feelings. So that's a call to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Have the same feelings that others have. Relate to their feelings, have compassion. I remember when at CCA, we had a CCA family where the a student's dad and grandpa died within hours of each other. They got news of one of their deaths, and as they started making arrangements for that death, they got news of the other's death. So they had these two deaths right in a row, and me and another pastor from the school was asked to go to the home immediately. You know, stop what you're doing, go to the home, minister to the family. Now this pastor, this happened about 15 years ago, and this pastor is about 20 years older than me, much more experienced than me. And as we're driving to the home, I said to him, you've done this a lot more than me, man. What, what do you say? What do you say when twice they had the worst day of their life in the same day? They had the worst day of their life twice in the same day. So what do you say? And he said, there, there's nothing we're gonna say. He says, we're gonna weep with them. That's all we're gonna do. We're gonna show up and we're gonna cry. And, and, and you're gonna see how biblical that is and how God ministers through our weeping. We're just gonna have compassion. We're gonna have like feelings. And with the picture he drew for me in my mind was this, suffering is like this big pile of garbage. And when we weep with those who weep, it's like saying, I'll take a shovel and I'm gonna shovel as much as this grief away from you as I can and I will carry it. And even though I had no death in my family, I wanna carry sorrow for you so it's just a little bit less that you're gonna carry. Okay, so we weep with those who, who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We have compassion, it's a Christian virtue. 
So he calls us to unity and he calls us to compassion. And he calls us to brotherly love, brotherly love. It doesn't matter if it's your brother or not. It doesn't matter if it's your friend. It doesn't matter if it's a Christian stranger to you. We're called to brotherly love. Why? Because even if it's a Christian stranger to you, that stranger shares a dad with you, doesn't he? You have the same father, and that makes you siblings. And so within the faith, we share brotherly love with each other. And unlike other loves, brotherly love endures time, distance, and even disagreement. No matter how far away you might be from a sibling, no matter how much time might go by, when there's a family reunion, you just pick it up as brother and sister. If they suffer, you suffer. If they rejoice, you rejoice. There's something about siblings that, that is permanent. Now there's a friend that sticks closer to a brother. Your sibling's not supposed to be with you your whole life. You're supposed to separate, and there's friends that don't separate. But the problem, the thing is about friendship love is that it can go away and stay away. But sibling love stays forever. It stays intact. You're never not their brother. You're never not their sister. So that's a love that you're called to is you're never gonna not be Christian brothers and sisters with each other. So we're called to love like that, this enduring love. And then he calls us to be tenderhearted. Be tenderhearted. Tenderhearted means this. It means gentle. Now, where I find my need to be gentle in my role is the admonition to speak the truth in love, okay? So there's different avenues of gentleness. Some are just very ministerial, like bedside type, man, bed, bedside type manners for those that are suffering. Others are called to, to speak truth into people's lives, but they're to do it with a tender heart. Everything's done tenderheartedly. It means it's as if you know that their heart has a bruise on it, and you know when you, a bruise might be fine until you touch it, right? And then when you touch it, it's, you get very sensitive to it. So when we speak tender, tender-heartedly to people, it's saying as if their heart had a bruise and you don't want to touch it and upset it. So you speak in a way as not to put pressure on their hurt, but you still are able to speak to them because you're united to them. You have brotherly love for them, but you speak tender-heartedly to them. It's a Christian virtue that we are called to. And then he says, be courteous. And I love that word courteous because this comes from the Elizabethan era. And it has to do, courtesy comes from two words, court etiquette. Court etiquette is your courtesy. So that means the royal courts, you know how um, uh, Queen Victoria was famous for telling her children when they would go out, she would say, now behave like princes and princesses. And she could say it literally, right? It's not like our little dress-up kids. They dress up like that. She's saying, you're a prince, you're a prince. Behave like it. Okay, behave like princesses. All right, that have court etiquette. Have the etiquette of the royal court. That's courtesy. We're called to courtesy. They have that type of, that type of respect for one another, like court etiquette towards one another and respect. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary, blessing. See, it's one thing not to get revenge on somebody. That takes a lot of inner strength to withstand not taking revenge on somebody. But that's not Christian enough. That's not the Christian picture. The Christian picture is not only not to get revenge, but it's also to offer blessing to the one that you want revenge on. 
Now you're looking like Jesus Christ. Now you're a message for the world. Now you're what Paul called, he says, you're my letter written on hearts. You're a message, you're a logos, okay? So uh, we don't return uh, evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead blessing. Now go back to chapter two, starting verse 21. Look at the picture of Jesus Christ obeying this. He says, for to this you were called. You have a calling on your life. What are you called to here? He says, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who being totally innocent, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed to him, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus Christ had the knowledge, the wisdom, the strength, and the power to look at the guy with the cat of nine tails in his hand that just broke his back wide open, and then they pushed that broken back up on a splintered cross, and as he's raised up above that man who still has the cat of nine tails in his hand, he could look at him instead of saying, just wait till the resurrection, buddy, I'm coming after you. He says, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. It would have been fine if Jesus just ignored him, but it said Jesus offers blessing to him. And then here's where the salt hits our wounds. He says, I did that as an example for you to follow. Don't revile, don't return evil for evil. Martin Luther King Jr. had one of the greatest statements on that. He said, when we add violence to violence, we only add deeper darkness to a night that's already devoid of stars, okay? So instead, we offer blessing. How powerful is this verse? Ready? Ready for a powerful, powerful verse? It goes like this. A soft answer turns away wrath. We don't see that as powerful, do we? We don't see that as powerful. We see the gunslinger coming in with his guns and breaking through the doors of the bar and getting revenge on his enemies. We go, powerful. God says this, soft answer would have been better. Soft answer would have been a real hero. But guess what the cowboy doesn't have? He doesn't have enough inner strength to use the soft answer, so he has to use his guns. That takes inner strength, it takes Christ's character. It takes sanctifying, it takes the Holy Spirit working in you day in and day out for you to have the power and the strength to use a soft answer to turn away somebody's wrath. So we don't return reviling for reviling, but we return it with blessing, knowing that you were called to this. What did it say in verse 21, chapter two? For this you were called. <laughs> it says, this you were called. Be like Jesus on the cross who offered blessing instead of cursing. What does he say here? Chapter three, don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Know that you are called to this. You're called to that type of strength of character. That you may inherit a blessing. What kind of behavior does God bless? He blesses those who can bless their enemies. God blesses those who can bless their enemies. Four, verse 10, he who would love life and see good days, let him, refrain, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now I know for a fact, all of you want to love your life. You want to see good days. 
So when you ask somebody for the recipe and they give it to you, wouldn't it be weird for you to have in your heart to not put those ingredients in to get the, the results that you wanted? Well, here's the results. If they want the results of loving your life and seeing good days, the Lord God says, refrain your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking deceit. That's going to get you to where you want to be. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace, pursue it. Those are action verbs, stuff you have to actually be doing. Jesus said, blessed are the peace makers. Maker is a verb. It's an action verb. It's not a passive verb like peacekeeper. A peacekeeper walks into a room that has peace in it, and they don't do anything to upset the peace. They're a peacekeeper. There was peace here, and I kept it. But a peacemaker goes into where there's no peace, and after their Christian influence is given in that unpeaceful room, when they leave, guess what's in that room now? Peace. They made it. They made the peace. There was no peace. They made the peace, and now there's peace because a Christian was there. And there's a blessing for the peacemaker. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Remember I said the Lord sees you and hears you, but stuff can hinder your prayers so he doesn't hear you. Here it says this type of behavior, the Lord sees it, he hears it. His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen to how intimate it is for the righteous. We get the eyes and we get the ears. And then the unrighteous, just as a general picture of the face. The face is turned against. You don't get the details of God's face, the eyes and the ears. You just get the face that's against you. Okay. All right. So the Lord sees this type of person. The Lord hears this type of person. Verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? This is kind of a sarcastic rhetorical question. Peter's saying, hey, if you do good, who in the world's gonna harm you? But don't we know that many, many people will harm us for doing good, correct? So he understands that. So he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Here's what I hear in that. Even if you suffer for righteousness sake, God's got your back. God sees it. God sees your suffering for righteousness snake. He's got your back and he has a blessing for you. And do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. Remember Jesus said this? He said this at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. After saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are you who when you are persecuted and men speak all manners of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. He has advice for you when you're going through that hardship. His advice is this, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven because such is how they treated the prophets of old. You just entered into the life of a prophet when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. You're persecuted for the name of Jesus. You've just entered into the life of a prophet and the Bible says a prophet gets a prophet's reward. I don't know what the reward is for prophets, but I bet you it's pretty big. Prophet gets a prophet's reward. And you enter into that life of a prophet when you're persecuted like a prophet for Jesus' sake. So this just says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Do not be afraid of the threats nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone to ask you for the reason and the hope that is in you. 
Do you understand how much it testifies to people when you stand for righteousness' sake? So Peter's saying, when you stand for righteousness' sake and you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you because people are gonna go, how did you do that? You must really believe. How do you really believe? How are you so sure that what you believe in is true? And now he says, so you need to be ready for that. So be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. They just watched you suffer for righteousness sake. They just watched you not conform to the world. They just watched you show a strength that they didn't think people had in them. So they're gonna wanna know what's that all about. So he says, so be ready in that moment because you're gonna give a defense to everyone ask you for the reason for the hope that's in you. There must be a tremendous hope in you that you would be receive persecution for who you are and what you believe. With meekness and fear, with meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Weakness is weakness. Meekness is strength. The best picture I've ever heard of meekness it's like when you watch the Kentucky Derby and you see these extremely muscle-bound horses walking up to the, to the gate. And they are nothing but hooves and muscles and fur. That's all a horse is. Hooves, muscles, and fur. That's all they are. Pure muscle, through and through. I don't know if they got a pound of fat on their 2,000 pounds of, of body there. Okay, they're total muscle. Yet... When they're in that gate, they're perfectly still. But when that gate opens, they are ferocious. They are ferocious. All those muscles kicking in at once and the, the torque and the acceleration and the speed and the endurance and all of that, when they're standing in that gate, that's your picture of meekness. That is power in control. Power in control is, is meekness. If you think meek is being weak, try being meek for a week. Okay, it's courtesy of a bumper sticker. I didn't think of something so silly. All right. With meekness and fear, fear is just simply realizing who it is who's asking you to do it. Okay, who it is that's asking you to do it. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He's saying, I'm gonna turn the tables on them for you. They accuse you, they make you suffer, you stand for righteousness snake, I'm gonna give you a blessing, here's what one of the blessings are. I'm gonna make them ashamed when people observe your good conduct in Christ. They'll be ashamed of what they said about you. For it is better, if it's the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says, if you do evil and you suffer, don't start using these verses to back it up. Don't say you're suffering for a blessing. If your suffering's for evil, then you're getting what you deserve. But if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, then the blessing comes. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay, now this is where, Mike, you're gonna get tons and tons of questions in the next few verses, so get ready, okay? now. First of all, I wanna say this before we get into that. Peter's talking about suffering, that there's a blessing in suffering and you should rejoice when you suffer for righteousness sake and that um, if you do it with meekness and fear, you're showing 
that you really belong to Christ and you're suffering. And we're not to say, God, why, why, why? Because, because you're mine, he's gonna say. This is what it's like to be mine in an evil world, all right? Now, Paul, here's how he speaks of suffering. I'm gonna read from 2 Corinthians 11, starting in 22. Paul, people are saying, Paul, you weren't one of the 12. Why do you speak with this authority of an apostle? You weren't one of the 12. He's trying to say, but I was made an apostle by Jesus Christ. He met me all by myself on the road to Damascus and he changed my life from Christian killer to Christian apostle in a, in a heartbeat just like that. So he's comparing himself to the other 12 guys and he says this in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, imagine saying that about John and Peter and James. I'm more of a minister of Christ than they are because I've been in more labors. I've been in stripes above measure. That's the whippings, stripes above measure. In prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received the 40 stripes minus one. The 39 lashes Jesus got, Paul got those five times. If, Paul, if, you, if you said, Paul, lift up your shirt, and you looked at his back, he'd throw up all over the place. It'd be disgusting. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. And journeys off. And listen, everything he's mentioned so far, not one of them has ever happened to me. So how do I complain? He's in a list of all this stuff, and not one of these things have I come close to. In journeys off and in perils of water, I did slip in the shower once. So I get that one. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. The man is never in a safe place. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often. How, do you, how much do you complain when you don't get a good night's sleep the next day? Does everybody at work know it? He says, that's one of my problems too, Paul says, but how about the other stuff? in hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness besides the other things what comes upon me daily with my deep concern for the church he says you know what all that suffering i went through but guess what else i got to go through i got to deal with the church man you ever tried dealing that i got to deal with all these churches deep concern for the churches listen and then he says this in 12 1 I'm going to go on boasting. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, whether out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself, and he's saying he was caught up to heaven. And he says, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I'll speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anybody think of me above what, uh, what he sees to be, what he sees me to be or hears from me. He's saying, listen, I saw heaven, and there are no words to express it. You could say, just use the greatest words you've ever heard of. He says, no, that doesn't express it. It's better than that. In another letter, he'll say it's surpassing greatness, surpassing. It's like waves of an ocean constantly coming over a barrier. It's greatness that just keeps surpassing itself. That's what's waiting for you in heaven, by the way. Surpassing greatness. Now, he says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, 
a messenger of Satan to buffet me. This is no game. God gave him suffering, tremendous suffering. Of all the whips and beatings and imprisonments he just mentioned, he never asked God to stop those. But this thorn in the flesh, it says, he cried out three times that it might depart from me. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Did you ever think that your suffering was simply that you would know that God's gonna give you a little bit more grace than that suffering? He'll give you this much suffering, but he's gonna give you that much grace. And how would you know about grace if you weren't made to suffer? If you only suffer this much, guess how much grace you get? This much. If you don't suffer at all, not a whole lot of room for grace. But if you're made to suffer, you're gonna always have a story of grace that surpasses the suffering. So that Paul can say this with all of that, Romans 8, 18, he says, for I consider the present sufferings of this world not worthy of comparing to the glory that awaits you in Christ Jesus. Is he qualified to speak in on suffering, do you think? And he says, with all that suffering I've had, I got a glimpse in heaven of glory and they ain't worthy of comparing to one another. The glory is so tremendous that my sufferings are not worth speaking about. Can you hold on to that until you get to heaven? Beatings and lashings and imprisonments and being stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and floating in the sea for a day and a night. Everywhere he goes, he's in danger in his life, everywhere. God gives him a glimpse of heaven and all of a sudden he becomes so boastful and arrogant, God has to give him a messenger of Satan to torment him to keep him humble. What a life that man lived. And, and here's what he says. I'm gonna to go to Jerusalem, even though I know I'm gonna be arrested. And then I'm gonna to appeal to Rome and they're gonna send me to Rome and there I'll be sentenced to death and they will remove my head from my shoulders. And Paul writes before that happens, in a Philippian jail, he's waiting to hear if he's gonna live or die. And he says, I don't know which one to choose. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He says, if I'm lucky, I'll be executed. But if God needs me to hang around you guys and keep teaching you, then I'll do that. But if I'm lucky, they'll kill me. Okay, he understood glory. He understood glory and we should learn about glory from the one who suffered so much. Back to First Peter as we close. Okay, that's Ephesians. That's why it doesn't make sense to me. Let's go to First Peter. All right. All right, for Christ also suffered in 18 for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom, that's the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. By whom is the Holy Spirit? By whom also he went, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. What just happened? <laughs> it's like we were getting instruction on suffering and on 
on submission and all this, and all of a sudden it's, oh, those guys in Noah's day, they're in prison awaiting for, and you're like, you just switch gears on me super quick, and what are you talking about? All right, so let's look at this a little bit closer. All right, so it talks about the Holy Spirit made Jesus Christ alive from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Now, it says, by that same spirit, in verse 19, Jesus went and preached to the spirits who were in prison. Who are these spirits in prison? It says that the ones who, were, who formerly were disobedient, when were they formerly disobedient? When the divine long-suffering, that's God's patience, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So God gave Noah 120 years to build the ark. He said, the end of man will be in 120 years. That's when the flood will come. He gives Noah 120 years to build the ark before the flood comes. That was God's patience with the wicked of the earth. 120 more years, they get to run around the earth wicked. And then he says, he waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This is Noah and his wife, the three sons and the three wives of the three sons. Those eight were saved through water. And the picture is this. The waters were judgment waters on the world. They were drowned in judgment. Big bodies of water like the Red Sea and the Jordan, they represent judgment. The flood of Noah represents judgment. And they're drowned in that judgment. But the ark rises above judgment. It stays above the waters. It stays above judgment. So they're saved. Jesus is that ark now. Just like the ark door, God said you make one door for the ark. There's only one way to get in and be saved. So Jesus is the only name under heaven given by which men can be saved. He's the ark. Now, with these bodies of water representing judgment, think about when the apostles are on a boat and they see Jesus walking across the water. What's that a picture of? Jesus is above judgment, isn't he? He's above the waters. He's above judgment. And now think about what Peter says. Hey, Lord, if that's you, then call me to come out on the water. See, one thing Peter understood was when a rabbi says, follow me, like Peter was told and the apostles were told to follow Jesus, that means you can do what the rabbi does. Rabbis train apostles to do what they do. So Peter's like, my rabbi's walking on the water, then I must be able to too. So he says, Lord, if that's you, call me to walk out on the water. So Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat onto the water. And as he's looking at Jesus, he's able to stay above judgment. But then the Bible says he notices the wind and the waves. That's the world. Now he's not looking at Jesus. He's considering the ways of the world. And what happens? He falls into judgment. And what happens when a Christian falls into judgment like that? Peter offers the quickest, most effective prayer we've ever seen in the history of the world. He says his prayer is this, Lord, save me. And then the hand of God reaches down and pulls him right back above the judgment and saves him. And the only way Jesus can pull him out of that judgment is if Jesus is willing to go under the water to his death himself for him. He's got to die in Peter's place now. And then they get in the boat and they're saved. As long as you're focused on Jesus, you'll rise above judgment too because he took it for you. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, you're going down in the water into judgment. Now, 21, there's also an antitype which now saves us. Now, huge division in churches over this. Many, many people brought under the charge of heresy for this verse. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. 
So the Baptist church fell into this church first saying baptism saves. This tells us there's, a, there's something that saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. This is not saying baptism saves you. It says baptism is the antitype of the saving of Noah from the waters. It's the antitype of being freed from judgment. So the type or the type was the ark saving Noah and eight souls through the waters of judgment. Now that same saving from watery judgment, the antitype is baptism. And it says that it's your good conscience towards God and it says that it represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Represents, it's not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it represents, how does it represent? Well, Jesus died. So what do we do at baptism? We put you into the watery grave. And then Jesus didn't stay dead, he came out, he rose. So we put, bring you back up out of the water. A picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism is an anti-type it, it's not the thing that saves you. It's, the type, it, it's showing you the fulfillment of the type. It's showing you that if you get into the ark, you'll not be a victim of the flood. Just like if you're in Jesus, then your baptism represents that you're above judgment now as well through Christ's righteousness. Okay, now, he finishes by saying, it's the same Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Let me just say this about going to the spirits in prison. It seems what Peter's saying, and there's much disagreement, much debate on this, but it seems to me that what Peter is saying is the wickedness on the earth of those who died on the flood have been awaiting judgment until Christ died and rose again. And when, and when Christ died and rose again, he went and preached to those in prison, not a saving message, but a judgment message. And, and uh, those were who he went and saw were disobedient as God waited in the days of Noah. Now, some people say this, that means Christ went into hell. Okay, I do not believe that that's accurate teaching at all. I don't think anybody gets out of hell. It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. And once you face that judgment, there are no other judgments. If your judgment is for hell, you're there forever. If your judgment is for heaven, you're there forever. There is no second judgment appointed to man. Now, if there was, then we wouldn't know why Christ died on the cross, because all we'd have to do is figure out that second judgment, okay? Now, people will appeal to the Apostles' Creed, which will say in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell. Now, the Apostles' Creed is a man-made creed. It's not under divine inspiration. And me and, and many, many others, I don't want you to think I'm just coming up with this myself, they think the Apostles' Creed is, has, is, mis is misunderstanding when Paul says, what does it mean to ascend to heaven? But Christ ascended into heaven. What does it mean to descend that he also descended to the lower regions? When people hear lower regions, they automatically think of hell. But it says that he first ascended into heaven. Now with that heavenly view, he also descended. Now where's the lower regions he descended to if he starts in heaven? It's right here on the earth. And here on the earth is where he sets the captives free. He's not setting captives in hell free. Why judge them? He's setting us free, setting me free, setting you free. 
here in the earthly regions. It's his incarnation of being a man on the earth. He descends to these lower regions of the earth and he sets us free from that. So uh, I don't think this passage is talking about him going to hell either. Now, it finishes by saying he's at the right hand of God. That's the power position. Angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. So with angels and powers and authorities being made subject to him, Paul can say in Ephesians that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Your battles are not earthly battles. They are spiritual battles. You're wrestling against principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And if you don't recognize that that's your battle, then you can't fight that battle. If you don't fight that battle, you can't win that battle. And the battle is won as long as you're in Christ, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You're the strong man in the battle. The devil is the weak man. Christ in you goes undefeated. He never loses a battle. Now, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, and you're fighting principalities of powers of darkness in higher places. It sounds like a mismatch, but you have weapons of warfare. And here's how I want to finish, and here's what I hope you remember for next week. Your weapons of warfare to defeat powers of wickedness in the heavenly places is this. Submission, obedience, and suffering. With that, you cannot lose. It's submission to the will of God. It's obedience to the will of God. And it's you suffering knowing that that you're called to that in Christ Jesus in this world. If you are light and you're put in darkness, there's gonna be a tension there. There's gonna be a battle. And if that battle causes you suffering, think of Paul's suffering. And what Paul would say to you is in Romans 8.18, tattoo that on your forehead. Romans 8.18, for I consider the sufferings of this present world not worthy of comparing to the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. You got 80 years top to suffer. You got 80 trillion times trillion times trillion for glory. So you persevere and you endure and you trust. And that is the life of a Christian. Let's pray. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to you, Lord, the name that's above all names, Lord, the name that suffered even though he was innocent, the name that when reviled, he didn't revile back, but instead he entrusted himself to you, Lord, who judges righteously. Lord, we want to be found in you on judgment day. We want to be found in your righteousness, Lord. We want to be found as servants of the Lord, well-pleasing to you, Lord. So Lord, I pray that there's so many different journeys of so many different Christians that are listening to me right now. I pray that all of those journeys become unified. Lord, we're all of like-mindedness so that your power can come through and show the world that you're alive, that you're real, and that you're filled with love and grace and tenderness, Lord, and truth. May we be used by you, Lord, as that vessel of honor for your great namesake in all the world. We pray, amen. Uh, the first question that we have uh, is referring to Peter getting off the boat. 
Uh, do you have any idea as to why Peter was the one to step off the side of the boat in John 21 7? Like why him and not others? Is that the idea? Why him and not others and why do it at all? Uh, I believe that he did it because, you know, all Jewish boys were at a young age are trained to be rabbis. And then at certain ages, there's disqualifications that happen. If you're not the straight A student, if you're no, not the best of the best, then you're removed from rabbinical training and you are put on some other path, usually the path that your father was on and you go into your father's trade or something. But the best of the best kept moving forward in rabbinical training. The fact that we have apostles that are tax collectors and fishermen and, and other areas show that they weren't the best of the best. But if you were the best of the best, uh, when you finished your rabbinical training, you were assigned a rabbi and you were told to follow that rabbi. And you were to follow him very closely and do everything that he does and that's your training. They used to give a blessing, a Jewish blessing would say, we pray that you are covered by the dust of the, your rabbi's feet. And the idea of that blessing is you're following him so closely that when he kicks up dust, you get covered in his dust from following so closely. So they were trained to do everything their rabbi did. So when Jesus walks by the fishermen and says, hey, follow me, and it says they drop their nets and follow, you wonder what makes them make that life decision in that moment. Well, part of that is because they knew they were rejected from following a rabbi before. And now when a rabbi shows up your boat and says, follow me, it's a huge honor. So they jump at that honor and they follow this rabbi. And so now they're being trained to do what he does. So Peter's rabbi is walking on water. So he says, that's part of the training. Then Lord, call me out onto the water. So I think he sees it as I've got the coolest rabbi in the world and I'm being invited to be like the coolest rabbi. So if he's walking on the water, I want to walk on the water. I think it was his understanding of that he's supposed to be following like that. And why not the others? Well, we see the personality of Peter is usually the first to jump at anything. Um, he's usually uh, jump first and look where you're landing after type of thing. And so uh, it seems consistent with his personality that, that it's him. So other than that, I wouldn't know why not the others, but uh, he seems to have the right personality for it. Well, we have a question here uh, referring to the Apostle Paul. Do we have any idea what the thorn is in his side? Uh, we have an idea, but it's just that, an idea. And the idea for me is that you see in other letters, he shows hints of suffering that he's going through, and it all has to do with his eyes. Um, that he'll tell the Galatian church that I know you love me so much that you would even gouge out your own eyes and give them to me if you could. Now, if he's got a serious eye issue, that makes sense. If he doesn't have a serious eye issue, that's a little gross to say to somebody. I don't see any many Valentine's cards that say, I love you so much I would gouge out my eyes and give them to you. So um, I think he must have had an eye issue there. We also see evidence of an eye issue in that, well, the guy was blinded, wasn't he? Completely blinded by a light, put scales on his eyes, right? That could cause a serious eye issue and be the thing to torment him for the rest of his life. And then another bit of evidence is that when he writes, I forget to what church he's writing to in this letter, you can look it up, but he'll say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. And the idea is he would use an amanuensis, he would use a scribe to write what he dictated. 
And we see a, one of them in Romans 16, his name is uh, Tertius. Tertius says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, also greet you. So we know Tertius was his amanuensis of the book of Romans. But when he wants to make an emphatic point, he'll grab the pen from the amanuensis and he'll write it. And he'll say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. And then he'll say, here's the proof. See what large letters I'm using. So why would somebody use very large letters unless they had very poor eyesight? So it's like people that are hard of hearing speak loudly so they can hear themselves. People that have poor eyesight write largely so they can see what they're writing. So I think that's three bits of evidence that the messenger of Satan to torment him was suffering in his eyes. Um, I don't know of any other evidence for any other type of suffering, but I think there's three bits of evidence that it may have to do with his eyes. We have another question here that says, what is the third heaven? Uh, I think first century understanding of the heavens were, they would call what we call this atmosphere, they would call that a heaven. What we call outer space, they would call a heaven. And where God and the angels dwell, they would call a heaven. And that would be the third heaven. And so he clarifies what he means by third heaven. The next verse where he says, I was caught up to paradise. So that's where people go when they die. The thief on the cross was promised to be in paradise that very day. So uh, the third heaven will be where God and the angels dwell, where you'll spend your eternity is in that third heaven. We have another question here that is referring to Genesis 1:16, where it says um, that God made two lights, the sun and the stars. In Genesis 1:3, it says, let there be light. What was the source of that particular light? Um, I believe it was God's light. I believe it was the light of the Lord. And, um, and, and people say, how can be the light of the Lord when it's described as having evening and a morning that shows like a rotation of the earth happening to create the evening and the morning from that light source. But yeah, I think God could radiate a light source from a locale, you know, from a point that shines on one side of the earth. When the earth rotates, you get an evening and a morning. I don't think that takes that away. It's, it's not the sun and it's not the sun, moon or stars. We know that, right? But when you're talking about a being who describes himself as light, I don't want to assume that the, the appearance of light before the sun is a problem. When the very God creating is described as light himself. So I think uh, I would say God is that light. Uh, we have a question here that says, what was the reason Jesus, after his resurrection, went and preached to the spirits in prison from Noah's time and not other times? Yeah, um, I think the best I can do with that is to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why them. I don't know why not others. Um, I'm not even sure I know that that's them. Um, and if you read 10 different commentaries, you'll get 25 different opinions on it. It's just people are doing their very best to figure that one out. Seems like Peter knew, and he almost he expected his audience to know because he just flat out says what he says without a whole lot of explanation. But the best it seems to me is these are the, the folks that Noah preached to. It said Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he's preaching to people for 120 years. And if you think you get frustrated at your job, know that his 120 years of preaching yielded no salvations at all. Okay? They all died. And... Um, um, but for some reason, I mean, many will suggest that those that died in that flood were half demonic beings because we see the sons of God come into the daughters of men and have children by them. 
And one of the major understandings, John MacArthur certainly is a supporter of this, where he'll say um, the sons of God refer to fallen angels because they're called the Nephilim, and that's the Hebrew word for fallen ones. So it's these fallen angels who come as men and impregnate earthly women so that they can make half demonic offspring. And that's why the world is so wicked before the flood because there's a demonic aspect to it. And that's who, who maybe Jesus visited there. And that's why I don't think he visited them to set them free in any sense. But um, we're just not told. We're not told what the conversation was, what the preaching was, who they were, or anything like that. And believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, this lack of detail serves as evidence of authenticity of the story. Now, why would that be? Because when you make up a story, you feel the overwhelming need to add detail to make it make sense and clarity, don't you? Because you're making it up and nobody has any foundation for understanding your made up story unless you provide detail. But the fact that Paul just, or Peter just mentions it almost in passing without any detail is obvious he has the understanding that his audience understands what he's getting at right from the get-go. Now, unfortunately, that did not, understanding didn't transfer down to us, but he, he was confident they, that his readers knew what he was talking about. And that's evidence of authenticity. Uh, we have a question here that says, is divorce contrary to the word of God? Is it contrary to the word of God? Believe it or not, we know God hates divorce. We know that. That's very plain in the text. Um, the passages in the New Testament that speak of divorce more speak about remarriage after divorce than it does actually divorce. So um, is, is it contrary to the word? Yes, it is. Um, it, it's not the will of God that divorce happens, but there are biblical reasons for divorce. Um, it's the remarriage part that gets trickier. And um, that seems to be Jesus's concern is remarriage in the passages that he talks about it in. Because an illegitimate divorce that men do, that lawyers do, God may not be recognizing that divorce. So therefore, just because man divorced you, if you get remarried by man after that, God may not have recognized the divorce, which means now you're married twice, which means the second person you're with is now an adulterous relationship because God still has you married to the first. So you got to make sure that you're freed from the first. And because you're a new creation in Christ, when you get saved, um, I agree with the churches that say that if you're married as an unbeliever and divorced as an unbeliever, now when you're saved, that new creature in Christ is entitled to a marriage um, type of thing. And, um, and there's churches that will disagree with that. Okay. And you don't just go to the church that agrees with your lifestyle. You got to figure out what you think the Bible's saying and the text is saying. Okay. Um, and, and, when it talks about adultery being a reason for a biblical divorce, now we know that's marital unfaithfulness, but now is domestic abuse part of that marital unfaithfulness that qualifies? Is pornography a part of marital unfaithfulness that qualifies? So now there's a lot of conversations that have to be asked about what is true adultery and marital unfaithfulness, what actually breaks the marital vows. Um, the easy one is death, we know that does. It's a tricky one. The remarriage part is where you really gotta focus in but you should fight for your marriages as hard as you can. I do a lot of marriage counseling and I have, sometimes it's just a waiting game. 
Sometimes it's just go to your separate corners. Let's get separate counseling and let's wait, 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 wait and see what the Lord does. And a lot of times he makes people brand new. He makes them brand new and, and they're not the same person and you can't believe who actually comes back to you and it's happily ever after. And sometimes it's not. But you need, you need counsel and you need time and um, you have to forgive like the Bible calls us to forgive and things like that. And when you do things according to the word of God, then uh, what I do in marriage counseling, it, and it's infinitely easier when they're Christians, infinitely easier, because I just hold them to their Christianity. I say, you're a Christian, here's what the Bible says, do it. If you don't do it, you're a disobedience and I don't blame her for being mad or I don't blame him for being mad. Okay, sometimes I'll read wedding vows to him. I'll say, remember, you promised God this. Are you really comfortable not doing it now? And if you're really comfortable not doing what you promised God that you would never do, then many people come to Jesus on judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this, that, and the other thing for you? And he says, depart, you worker of evil, I never knew you. I said, I just being truthful to you, I would think that people that were, were comfortable breaking their wedding vows, are, that, that Jesus would be, that's who Jesus would say that to. Because I don't think I'm the one that's going to say, Lord, Lord, and be told to depart. You don't think you're going to say, Lord, Lord, and be told to depart. Nobody who cries out, Lord, Lord, thinks they'll ever be told to depart. But Jesus says there's many people in that category. So who in the heck are they? So some of the evidence to that might be that you're, you promised God something forever and ever, and then you go, no, nah, I'm not going to do it anymore. Okay? Now, I might be talking to a lot of people right now that did that very thing, but I would say this for sure. It's not the unforgivable sin, so seek forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. And that might even mean calling the one that, that you, you broke the vows with and just saying, I need your forgiveness too. I'm asking God forgiveness. I'm asking you for forgiveness. I'm humbling myself and admitting my wrong and I'm just throwing myself at, at God's mercy and your mercy. It doesn't mean you got to reconcile. It just means you're seeking forgiveness. We have another question here that says, does hell exist right now or are people only judged and sent to hell on the day of the Lord judgment day? I think the Bible's clearer about heaven that to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I would only assume that hell is the same way. Uh, Cause I don't know if, if people that, Paul says in the twinkling of an eye, you're with the Lord to be separate from the body, to be present with the Lord. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. All these talks of immediately being in the presence of the Lord for the saved that die if the damned that die don't immediately go to hell, I don't know where they would go. I don't know of a third place. So um, I think everything's immediate, to my best understanding. Certainly heaven seems to be immediate. I think there's less evidence and less um, teaching on hell as far as its immediacy, but I don't see why it wouldn't be. Uh, another question reads, do we have any scripture that explains in detail how the Holy Spirit raises Jesus, the Son of God? How he raises them? No, no detail at all. Some passages say the Father raised them. Some say Jesus raised himself. Some say the Holy Spirit raised them. And that's where it all makes sense in the Trinity. If he wasn't triune, it wouldn't make much sense. But um, you'll see different passages that credit the raising of Jesus to the different uh, persons of the Godhead. And so, uh, but it never tells us how, how he does it. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't answer any more on that. Uh, we have a question here that says, is forgiveness considered a blessing to the person who has wronged someone else? Is it considered a blessing to the one that you're forgiving? Um, 
I think if you if you say it to them, I think there's uh, there's certainly an earthly temporary blessing for them to hear that. Um, I don't know the Bible teaches of a, a God blessing that goes to them. The Bible teaches the God blessing goes to you, the one who's truly forgiven them. Um, and it's not just a blessing, by the way. Um, it's a very much an expectation. And uh, one of the hardest parables to teach, I think, as people get uncomfortable with it, is Jesus teaching the parable of, of um, the unforgiving servant who was forgiven 10,000 talents worth of debt to the king, which is unpayable. If you live 10,000 lives, you'd never pay back 10,000 talents of debt. So it's unpayable, yet when he begs for mercy, he's forgiven all of it in an instant. But he takes all that forgiveness he just received and approaches a man who owes him just a little bit of money. And that man begs for mercy and the man does not offer him mercy. So when the king hears about that, he commands that the first servant be thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It says, because how could you who have received so much forgiveness not be forgiving to somebody who owes you so little. And so, uh, and, and the weeping and gnashing of teeth is a picture of hell. So it says if, you're, if you refuse to be forgiving, all the debts that are owed you are like the second man's debt. They're payable. Our debt to God is unpayable. Jesus had to become a man to pay it for us. So if God's willing to forgive the unpayable debt through his infinite son, then we should be able to forgive finite debts. And I wouldn't even say should be able to, we're highly expected to. And I know the anguish that goes into forgiving some of the things that have been done. And the reason why it might still be anguish for you is exactly because you haven't forgiven it yet. Forgiveness, the blessing of forgiveness is your personal freedom from the wrong that was done to you. You'll never know freedom from your hurts until you forgive the ones who hurt you. Then you're in a position to be set free. And I think an important thing to know is that forgiveness is not saying it's okay that you hurt me. Forgiveness is simply saying, I will not carry the chains of suffering around for the rest of my life. I'm releasing myself of those chains and I'm walking free from this. It's just letting somebody know I'm free from your effects on me now. And the only, you can't say I'm free because I'm getting revenge on you. You'll never be free from revenge, for revenge, but uh, you will receive freedom from forgiveness. Instantly, if I had time and maybe you can talk me into it next week, I'll tell you a story of forgiveness that bring tears to your eyes. It's one of my former students um, forgiving his uh, cheating wife and the man that she's cheating with uh, being right at her side uh, while they're infant child is in the hospital dying um, and he has a letter in his hands to read to his dying child a goodbye letter as he confronts his wife and the the man that she's cheating with and their four-year-old daughter in the hallway and uh, as he has every instinct to beat the heck out of him in that hallway he prays and just says lord only you can stop me from really literally physically killing this man now and you need to stop me and I want to do your will. And he opens his eyes, he opens his mouth, not knowing what he'd say. And what comes out of his mouth is, I want you both to know that I forgive you for what you've done. And he even says to the guy, you have to take very good care of my daughter because that's the thing that'll keep get me coming back at you. 
He says, but I have a letter in my hand that I've written to my son and I'm gonna go read it to him now. And he read it to his son and his son died that evening. And he said, I felt a blanket of peace cover me when I forgave him. As soon as I said, I forgive them, this blanket of peace came over me that said, you're gonna be okay now, you're free. And I talked with him many, many, many days after that. And he was fine, he was free. He didn't like it, but he was free. He didn't pay the consequences that most people pay of going through the agony that that man went through. And uh, another one of our students became a short film movie producer and did a short film on it and won an Emmy award for the film. He won an Emmy award for the best short film of the year. And uh, I got to hold that Emmy. I had the actual Emmy award in my hand uh, that, that he won for telling this kid's story. It's absolutely remarkable. So like I said, I don't have time to tell a story tonight, but uh, maybe some other time. Uh, we have a question that came in that says, how can God hold people accountable when Jesus says to the Father, forgive them for they, for they know not what they do? How, say the first part again. How can God hold people accountable when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, two things. First of all, he was only speaking to his killers. He was asking his father to forgive his killers. That's not, he's not, that's not a statement for the world. That's a statement for his killers. He's asking for his killers' forgiveness because they don't know what they do. But how can that apply to others? I would say this. If we could put on spiritual glasses and see the spiritual world, those princes, those those principalities and powers of darkness in higher places that we're doing battle against all the time, if we could actually see that and we could see that when we sin, how much rejoicing happens in that world and how much sorrow happens with the angels of God that are in his presence and God himself, I would say we would never sin. That would be our strength to never sin if we could see that. But because we don't have those spiritual glasses, it can be said of us, forgive us because we don't know what we're doing. There, every sin is a sense we don't know what we're doing. We don't know that that sin just cost us compromises in our life. That, that we would have been far better off not sinning than sinning, but in the moment we think the sin is the better thing to do. So there's a sense that with every one of our sins that we ask forgiveness for, Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the extent of this, of the awfulness of telling a little white lie or of, of uh, you know, I don't know, whatever the sin is, okay? But if we could see the spiritual world um, and, and the demons and the devil laughing with joy over every one of our sins and the sadness of the Lord, then we would know what we're doing. We would know the effect. We would know the seriousness and we might have the strength to not do it. But because we don't see that way, there's a sense that we don't know what we're doing. And um, I talked to a young lady uh, one of our students who is has serious forgiveness issues um, because she actually saw her father cheating on her mother. He actually, she actually saw it and and divorce happened and all that. And she has serious forgiveness issues going on. And um, one of the things that's helping her to be willing to have a relationship with her father again is this idea of he didn't know what he was doing. In other words, there's a moment where it just looks like it's innocent and it's love and it's exciting. But if he can know 
that this will drive his daughter from him, cost him his family, cost him his marriage. If he could see all that in the moment, he probably had the strength to walk away. But in the moment, he couldn't see it. So all he saw was what the woman offered at the moment. So wisdom is being able to see that whole picture. It's being able to say, I can articulate what this sin will be and the consequences will be and all of that. Even if you don't get caught, just being having to be a hypocrite in front of your wife for the rest of your life because you know something that she doesn't know and you're not allowing her to know it when she has the right to know it because she has the right to decide to leave you or not. You're denying her that right. There's a whole lot of awfulness that goes into that. Yeah, so God can certainly hold us accountable for our sin. It's not that when we sin, we don't know what we're doing. We know sin is a problem, but I think we don't know the extent of that problem because we can't see the spiritual world. We have just a couple more questions here as we wrap up. One of them says, how can a wife encourage her husband to be more of a spiritual leader in the home, to encourage reading the Bible a little bit more and yet still be submissive? Was that from Diana? <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to tell me. Okay. Um, yes, it was actually. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, talk to him. Ask him. Tell, tell him what you, what you want. Um, you know, uh, let, let him know how important it is to you that, um, you know, that he does lead you spiritually and so forth. Um, and uh, I, I don't know much more to say than that. Just, you know, find a way to have that conversation. Um, and um, I... <laughs> You know, I know how hard it is to, to carve out that time to do that. I know how hard that is. And um, sometimes one of the blessings is you can text verses and text spiritual thoughts to your, to your wife and so forth. If, if you're so busy and it's very hard to settle down. And, and uh, I know a lot of our free time, it's just we just want to spend it relaxing on the couch and just not using energy. Because every, every other minute is energy, energy, energy. So maybe a text, you know, of a, a, a thought or two. Uh, run, run, run a bit of your devotion by her, you know, as you're talking. Um, and, uh, you know, Diana's been loving sharing her devotion and me sharing my devotion just as part of the morning conversation as we're getting ready for work type of thing. And, um, and that's cool. Because I end up remembering what, what Diana shares from what she's listening to more than I remember what my own devotion was. Because when she shares with me, it comes with her excitement and her discovery and all that. And that's part of the impact. Where when I read my devotion, it's just the words on the page and I got to stir up my own emotion on it. But when, when a spouse shares with another spouse and they see the emotion behind it, it becomes more memorable for them. So I'd encourage you just just ask. If you're the wife, just ask. You know, share with me what God's showing you. What is God showing you now? What is he showing you? And so forth. And, and uh, I think that's a good starting place. You have one more question. It's actually a follow-up uh, to a comment that you made earlier. Uh, and the comment was uh, when you were speaking about uh, Jesus possibly descending into hell. Um, the, the question says, the Apostles' Creed was first century document. Could descending into hell mean Abraham's bosom to liberate Old Testament saints? I actually think the Apostles' Creed is, I think it's fourth century. So I think it's much further removed from the Apostles. 
Um, it's called the Apostles' Creed because they pull from the Apostles' teaching, not because the Apostles did it. The Apostles didn't write the Creed. If they did write the Creed, I wouldn't challenge it at all because it has the authority of the Apostles behind it. But I think it was a 4th century church somewhere in the 300s AD that it was uh, made up. And um, um, so, Mike, I apologize. Just me saying that made me forget what the question was. The person that submitted the question says that they believe the Apostles' Creed to be close to 140 AD. Um, do you think that would be true on your eyes? And then the question is, uh, with the Apostles' Creed was first century document, um, could descending into hell mean Abraham's bosom to liberate Old Testament saints? Um, well, I, I, first of all, 140, uh, since you corrected me, I'm going to correct you right back. It's the second century, uh, not the first century, but, um, the, for, the Old Testament saints weren't in hell. So if he went to hell to find them, they wouldn't have been there. Um, the Old Testament saints would have been in Hades, which is the place of the dead. And Hades is divided between uh, where the rich man was in his suffering, which we would call hell, and Abraham's bosom, which is a place of comfort and peace, uh, where that is a likely place Jesus went to set people free, but they would not have been free from suffering. They would have been free from just Abraham's bosom to be brought to paradise. So a distinction is made in um, scholarship that Abraham's bosom was the place for the Old Testament saints um, where they waited until Jesus died, rose again, and gave them entrance into heaven and, um, and, or, or, or paradise, as uh, the thief is told on the cross he would be. So, um, so I would say yes, we could, and I don't know that that would be a descending. I do think the descending is from heaven to earth but um, as far as the people within Abraham's bosom go, um, I think, I know they are obviously brought up into heaven. Um, but is that what the, the creed is trying to refer to Paul's words? The, the, the creed is referring to Paul's words when he says that how do we obtain the word of God? He said, is, is it, it's not that it's up in heaven where you have to ascend up there and get it. It's not down in hell where you have to descend and get it. But where is it? It says it's right here. It's right in your own mouth and so forth. And so uh, when he says ascend, he's talking about heaven. And he says descend uh, to the lower regions. Um, I, again, I just think lower regions, we automatically associate with hell. But because he already ascended, the descending would then just be to the earth. And when Paul or Peter uses the language of setting captives free and, and things like that, uh, it would mess up a whole lot of other teachings that I wouldn't know how to reconcile if people are actually suffering in hell and then set free from that suffering in hell. Um, so uh, it just, um, you know, when Jesus tells parables about weeping and gnashing of teeth, there's no indication that after he sends them to that weeping and gnashing of teeth, he'll be back to rescue them from that weeping and gnashing of teeth type of thing. So I, I just... Could, I couldn't see that at all. And we're ending with this last question. And it's simply, do single people matter to the church? Yes. Yes, they matter to the church. Why, why wouldn't they matter to the church? I don't understand. 
the person was asking just because the church tends to cater more to married people with families and so on and so forth. So does the church value a single person? Um, the capital C church, or is this a Calvary church question? To both. Um, I think the church values the Apostle Paul, single man, Jesus Christ, single man. Um, I think uh, Paul says singleness, um, God calls some people to singleness because of their great call to serve, their great call to the ministry that it should be undistracted and marriage wouldn't allow from that undistracted devotion to the Lord. So, Paul, so God will call some people to singleness. So the capital C church certainly values a single person and actually call some people to it because they can do stuff that married folks can't do. Uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what the singles ministry is about. I know, um, you know, uh, Diana and I hang out with a bunch of single people and, um, and uh, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, if you're asking that, then apparently there's not a lot. And if I can't give you specifics, I guess there's not a lot. But I would say uh, church service, obviously, is, is for single people as, as much as anybody else. Um, and here's the thing. You know, whenever somebody has a, an idea at Calvary Chapel, I don't know if you know this, but it's always assumed by Calvary Chapel that if you came up with that idea, that's a good chance that that's your calling to start that ministry. They usually don't look within the staff to say, here's a great idea, we need to do this. Or they usually look at the person with a great idea and go, sounds like a calling. You know, can you run with that? So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I, you, I don't know. I, I, obviously, if so, stuff's going on in singles ministry, I'm not going to get those emails. So I don't know what happens with singles ministry. I know ICON is typically a singles ministry. Um, Okay, I was just told that um, one of our deacons does a lot with singles ministry, but not since COVID has anything happened. But uh, apparently there's stuff. So uh, I would just ask, I would just simply ask um, at the church reception area about uh, anything going out with singles. But to ask if they value them, I, I have a hard time saying they don't value them. I, I, I'd be shocked and I would think something would need to be done if there's a impression that they're not valued for sure. That Nobody should feel that way. And if they do, then we need to examine that for sure. But those are all the questions that we have tonight, Pastor Bill. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to end this out with? No, just, uh, you know, we have next week and the week after, and that'll be the end of the book. Um, and, uh, you know, my heart is that you see it as one letter, as I said at the beginning. So if you want to just look over the last three chapters that we covered, see the flow of Peter's thoughts and maybe create some questions on that. I would just love to know that we're done for two weeks from tonight. You don't feel like you just studied five little books, but one you know, relatively short book. Uh, it's always important to understand even books like Romans that are long or Matthew that is long. To Matthew, it was just a letter. He didn't write chapters and all that. He just said, hey, here's Jesus Christ and here's the story and it's 28 chapters for us, but it's just one letter for him. So we want to make sure we understand these things from beginning to end. We want the 30,000 foot view, but here's how we approach it. We always stick our nose in a chapter and stop at the end of the chapter. So we only get these up, up close views. 
We don't look at artwork that way, do we? We don't go to museums and get this close to the artwork. We like to back up and take in all of its beauty. So that's what I, I, I want you to have a feeling like you're getting that for the five chapters. So if you're having trouble putting it all together, you know, you might want to think of some questions for next week in that regard. And otherwise, uh, I'll see you guys next week. God bless you. Keep doing as well as you're doing. Keep showing up. Keep reading your word and keep asking questions. Guys, the questions you ask can't come from an infant faith. They can't. These are great questions. And um, so good for you guys. And I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Be blessed.